The jailer called for the lights and he ran to the dungeon. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, what just happened in this story? I'll tell you what happened. He saw something was not, that was not humanly possible. And what we need in our culture, and what I'm praying for, is that we have the divine power of God so big in our world and so big in this church. There is no doubt that God is showing up and these are God-sized things that happen and not just in human form. You know, I was at my house the other day and I thought of this word. Archimedes. You say, well, good for you. That's good. What brought that name? See, Archimedes was a math physics guy back 350 years before Jesus who, who made this statement. He was talking about levers, leverage. And his statement was, give me a place to stand and I'll move the earth. That was his statement. And the reason he came to mind is that I was standing on our bed, in our bedroom. We had had a light bulb go out in the light fixture. Um, and Ruth, when we built this house, Ruth wanted something antique in it besides me. And she went over, over here on College Avenue where all those antique stores, and she found this cool light fixture from the 1920s, and we rewired it. It's just a, but it's a heavy sucker. And it's got that little thing you unscrew and it drops down. So I said, I can change this light bulb. So I get up on the bed with a light bulb, and I'm trying to hold this and unscrew it at the same time. And a bed is not stable. And, and uh, you know, if you want to live your life, don't live it standing on a queen bed trying to change a light bulb because it's very. And so I'm thinking about Archimedes. So give me a place to stand. Give me some stability, and I can move the whole earth. Our message this morning, our teaching, is about that idea. It's about a group of people, a delightful group of people, in a town in northern Greece called Berea, 2,000 years ago, who had discovered a profound thing. That scripture counts. That scripture, this, this story about God and us, gives us a place to stand. So I'm sort of a one-point guy when I speak. I, you know, I'll give you one point and tell you six stories. That's sort of my approach. And you may not remember the point, but you might remember a story. And so that's how I go with it. So my point today, and I'll tell you right off the bat, is the Bible matters. That's my point. Some of you say, good, can I go now? Yes, you may, but, but you'll miss the fun, okay? Because so, I'm going to toss in some why the Bible matters as we go along here. The Bible, what we call the Bible, Bible just from the Latin and Greek, it just means book. This book is a collection of writings by 66 people, not by 66 people, 66 writings written by 40 men over 1,600 years, from 1,500 B.C. to about 90 A.D., and it's stories, and it's songs, and it's poetry, and it's letters. And uh, the early church called this the canon of Scripture, not the like, like the 55 howitzer or 155 howitzer canon. It's C-A-N-O-N. Canon's the Greek word for measuring stick. And historically, the phrase has been used, the Bible is the rule for faith and practice in our lives. That's sort of the historical statement about it. What we believe about what's in here is that this presents the grand plan for our lives. It tells us who God is, who we are, 
who Jesus is, how we can be redeemed and respond to him. This book has been translated all kinds of times. I um, have some friends who are now gone, people who are my parents' age, by the name of Hal and Naomi Lehman. They were missionaries in northern Ghana for 35 years, and part of their function was to translate the scriptures into Dagbani, which was the tribal language. And I said, was that hard? He said, it took us 20 years. And he said it was so difficult translating idiom and all those sorts of things. And he said, but sometimes I'd be so tired, Dick, that we just had part of it translated. Some of the epistles, some of the letters were translated, and I kept them in an old cowhide piece of leather. And some nights on those warm African nights, I'd go to bed so tired, and I'd just lay that old cowhide with those Dogbani scriptures on my chest, and I'd just go to sleep. You say, well, that's just an anecdote. That's so subjective. Well, pretty much all of life is subjective. And when you are tired or when you're lonely or when you're afraid, presence is what you're looking for. You're not looking for some cute little saying. What you're looking for is presence. And for him, that was it. Or Billy Graham. Billy Graham, who's now 97 years old, has spoken, it is said, to more people on this planet than anybody in world history. In the 20th century, it's estimated he spoke to 2.2 billion people through radio, television, and crusades. And Billy had a formula when he preached. He'd start out, some of you have been to those crusades, and you hear him stand up and say, Time Magazine today said, you know, or whatever. And then he would say, and the Bible says, his, his go-to phrase in all of his preaching was, and the Bible says. He would say it numbers of times in his messages. When you're a little kid, you're not going around with cowhide on your chest or saying the Bible says. When you're a little kid, you're in kids' church like they are now. And along the way, they teach you some Bible verses. You're like four years old and you learn the hard ones like Jesus wept or stuff like that. Or for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I have a friend, Denny, who's now in his late 60s. He went through a difficult time in his 20s was brain damaged and he's in a facility back east right now but when he was a little kid in zion illinois he memorized some bible verses in vacation bible school we'll come back to denny a little later but our story today is about paul and his buddies silas and timothy we're back in the book of acts again where we were before easter and it's chapter 17 and it'll be on the screen here chapter 17 verses 1 through 4 this is a tale of two towns they're in northern greece and there's a town called Thessalonica. They go there, and the people chase them out of there, and they go to this other town called Berea. And this is how it reads. When Paul and his companions, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so you got three Saturdays, two weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, their scriptures weren't all of this. Their scriptures were that much. Old Testament, right? Reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Point one. On the back of your bulletin, if you're taking notes, Paul's purpose in preaching and engaging people was to prove that Jesus was the Christ. 
Let me say it again. Paul's purpose in preaching and engaging people was to prove something. That Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ, was the Messiah, the one who was coming to redeem people. Because you have in Jewish history, tradition, that there would someday be a leader, a world ruler, who would come and set the people free. Now, the deal is there are lots of Jesuses in, uh, in Jesus' day. You know, there are Jesuses in our day. There's Jesus who plays second base for the Santa Domingo Dragons, you know, that sort of thing. But there are a bunch of Jesus in Jesus' day. It's like a name like John. So this wasn't, he's saying, this is not the Jesus who grows figs down in Tekoa. This is not Jesus who's a fisherman in Sidon. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter from the hill country in Galilee, who was crucified 17 years ago. This is 50 A.D. in the summer. So 17 years before, Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. He's raised from the dead. And so he is talking to them about, about that Jesus, that particular Jesus, as their Messiah. You say, so did he quote like John 3.16? Well, he would have if it had been written, but it hadn't been written yet. Well, how about his own stuff like Romans 3.23, the wages of sin? Is that? No, he hadn't written that yet. But it was just like Jesus did on Easter Sunday. He was doing with the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea what Jesus did last week. Okay? Last week was Easter Sunday. We heard Pastor Derry talking about that. Great message. I love that part where Derry said, and Jesus is in the garden. Some of you are here, you remember that. Jesus was in the garden, and they come to get him. And Peter's going to be his defender. He's going to defend God. And he whips out his short sword and he takes a swipe at the guy who's closest to him. Now, if you're going to have an army, have guys that can aim straight. You know, he just, he just takes off his ear. And you can almost hear Jesus go, oh boy, Peter again. You know, he reaches down and Derry said he picks up the ear in, in this word picture and he puts it back on. And he said, wouldn't it have been cool to see Jesus just heal that ear right on? And Ruth and I were sitting over there and a little girl was sitting behind us. And she said, yes. Like that, I thought that was cool. She's probably writing and stuff, but kid, you think they're writing and not paying attention, but kids have like seven ears. You say, really? I think my kids are deaf. I talk to them all the time. They're not, uh, you know. But when Jesus rose from the dead in the afternoon of that Sunday, these guys, his disciples are rattled. I mean, the last 72 hours has been nuts. Because they had dinner with him, and then they went off to the garden, and then the temple priests came and took him away, and all of them ran away. All the disciples ran away. And Peter didn't run away, but he hung out, and when he was challenged, he lied about it, and then he ran away. And then they crucified him the next day, and there's a huge earthquake and all kinds of stuff. So they're shaken. Literally, they're shaken. And these couple of guys are going to a little village called Emmaus, just a few miles away, and Jesus shows up. And walks with him. You remember that story? And, and they don't recognize him. And so he engages them in conversation. Luke 24 says it this way. So I'm, I'm making this point to say what Paul is doing in Thessalonica and Berea is what Jesus did on what we would call Easter Sunday afternoon with these two guys. Jesus asks them, Luke 24:17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they turn to him, and I don't have the text up there, but they turn to him and say, this is a false paraphrase, well, where, where have you been, in a cave? Well, it's not a good thing to say to the Messiah, but I mean, they were saying, I said that last night, and a fellow came up to me afterwards and said, actually, he, uh, he had been in a cave. And I said, but, they, 
but he's saying, everybody's talking about this. Well, Jesus, I think he's sort of playing them. He's drawing them out. He's trying to make a point with them. And he said to them, how foolish you are, verse 25 through 27 of Luke 24, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Old Testament. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, the Torah, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. By the way, just a, just a parenthetical statement here. You learn stuff when you walk together. You learn stuff. When Jesus is in the mix, you learn stuff. Three weeks from today, I'll have a friend here. I get to come back, and, and my friend is Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson pastors a church of young people. There are eight locations on the Metro Line in Washington, D.C., and Ruth and I were a part of that congregation when it started with 19 folks. Mostly it was young people, but when you have a young congregation, you need some older guys just to be there because they have cash. And so we, we were there when it was 19, and now it's almost 4,000, and the median age of the church in these eight locations is 28 years old, and over half of them are single. And Mark and I have had the privilege of writing a little book together, and so we're going to be at the men's retreat up on the weekend of the 23rd and then come down here on Saturday night and Sunday and be together and sort of tag team. But I'm anxious for you to meet Mark. He's the age of our kids. He's in his mid-40s, but he's, he's, uh, I've learned a lot from him. So when you walk together with Jesus, you learn stuff. I, uh, I continue to read the text here, Acts 17, 5 through 9. Other Jews were jealous. This is in Thessalonica, that first town. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. I'm not going to read the rest of the text, but essentially they haul them before the authorities because the religious group are trying to use the political authorities to get rid of Paul and Silas. So they, they make Jason post bond. And Jason and his friends send Paul and Silas to the next town. So here's Thessalonica, and here's on a map, and here's Berea over here, 50 miles. So they send them overnight. They walk over to Berea. They, I mean, they have to pick them up and lay them down to get over there in the night. But they go to the synagogue there in Acts 17:10. This is how it reads. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews, interesting phrase, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Now, Dr. Luke is writing this. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. It's a two-volume set. For they received the message, the Bereans received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. It's very interesting that the word noble is used here. They were of noble character. It's an interesting word. It's the root word from which we get the name Eugene. So if your name is Eugene, noble. Now you've got to live up to it. I mean, that's the problem right there. But, but noble means fair-minded, generous of spirit. I have a friend who had two brothers. And when they were small, the father of the family would call the boys together each morning before they went off to school. He'd lay his hands on them and he'd pray this, Lord, help these boys wherever they are, at school or on the playground, to do something noble today. Noble is not a word that is sort of in our lexicon or in our dictionary. We don't use noble very much. We don't look at 
political leaders and say those are noble. But noble is a great word. We don't look at hardly anybody and use noble as a word to describe. Point two says that eager and inquisitive. This is on the back of your bulletin. Eager and inquisitive plus persistent. They were in the scriptures daily. Equals noble. Eager and inquisitive plus persistent equals noble. It's fun to be around eager people. One of the reasons I like kids is they're pretty eager. Pretty much. Everything for a kid is new. Everything's a first when you're a little kid. They're eager and they ask questions. If they're a two or three year old, the question is always, why? You say, well, because, and they say, why? You say, well, and they say, why? And finally, as a parent, you say, because. And that's it. But these were people who were eager. They had questions and they did it every day. Whatever matters to us really matters. We do that every day. Whether it's eat or sleep or exercise, whatever it is. If I came to your house and saw what you did every day, I would know what's important to you. Question. How did they study the scriptures? Because they didn't have one of these. You wouldn't have a book for the next 1,400 years. Books didn't come along until the 15th century. Well, the guy named Gutenberg did the printing press, and it's like the Internet. It just changed everything. Well, they had parchments in the synagogue, but you're not going to go to the synagogue every day and just do parchments. How did they do that? Well, they had a thing in Jewish culture, still do in a lot of places, where by the age of 10, most young boys in Hebrew school or because there was a mentor in the village would have memorized the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By the time they're 10, by the time they're 14, many of them had memorized the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. That's a lot of memory stuff. But when you're, when you're young, you can do that. You know, they, they actually probably believed what it said in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If I have one regret as I start my 75th trip around the sun, it would be this, that I didn't memorize more scripture. I'm still working on it. You say, you can still do that. I tell you, I to, but your brain changes when you get old. How many? No, I'm not going to ask that question. But the fact is, when you're a kid, when you're a little kid, that's why they can learn multiple languages by the time they're 10. Little kid has a Velcro brain. Say stuff, whack, it just sticks. Guys like me, we're Teflon brains. You hit it and off it goes over there. You don't even have to be this old. You know that. It just slides right off there. So I've got stuff taped up in my study that I'm working on memorizing because I have to keep coming back to it. The Bible matters. That's my main point. The Bible matters to a bunch of people. This is a bestseller. There are estimations that 5 billion people around the world have read parts or all of this book. Five billion people over time. Uh, there are scores of translations and paraphrases. The full Bible has been translated into 531 languages and some parts of it into over 2,300 languages. I brought some along just to show them to you. This was a Bible that my dad got in 1941. He was a youth worker in Northern California. It's King James version of the Bible. That's like Elizabethan Shakespeare language there. You could have this. This is a little New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. You just carry it in your pocket. You've got um, a couple of others here. Let me just get all this out. This is a harmony of the Gospels where they put all four Gospels together 
and because there's overlap and you can see it all at one shot. If you're really into study, this is a study Bible. You got you open this up, you got notes and all kinds of helps to help you study. This is uh this is the New Testament in paraphrase. There was a guy named J.B. Phillips, a pastor in London, who after the Second World War, he wanted language for guys coming back from Normandy and Bastogne and these terrible places to be able to read the Bible. But his comment about paraphrasing Scripture was it was like rewiring an ancient house without turning off the power. And then you've got, um, I like this one. This is, well, this is New Testament in Greek. Greek and Aramaic were the original languages. And so if you're a Greek reader, this is, you can get that. This one says, Heilige Schrift, Holy Writing. This was my grandmother Louisa's Bible when she was confirmed in the Lutheran Church at age 12 in Reedley, California in 1905. So the Bible's been around, you know what I'm saying? And when you look at it, when you look at how this works, it comes in a lot of different languages. This is one of my favorite right here. I have a friend who's a youth guy in California who gave this to me some years ago. It's the New Testament. It's called Da Jesus Book. This is the New Testament translated by Wycliffe Bible translators into Hawaiian pidgin English. Okay? Most of you know, or many of you would know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is it in pidgin. God when get so plenty love and aloha for the people inside the world that he when send me his one and only boy so that everybody that trusts me no get cut off from God but get the real kind life that stayed to the max forever. <laughs> cool, huh? I didn't know I was bilingual till I read that. That's fabulous. I'm thinking about going that one for the good one, you know, for the good deal. I was having lunch with a friend of mine, Rick Lawrence, who's an editor over here at Group Publishing in Loveland a while back, and he got me a copy of this. This is the new, one of the newest Bibles. This is the best. This is the hottest-selling Bible in the world right now. It's called the Jesus Bible. And many of you know that in several Bibles, Jesus' words are in red letters in the New Testament. What this has done is gone back to the Old Testament that Paul was working with in Berea, and all the things about the Messiah or the prophecies or thoughts about that in the Old Testament are in blue in this Bible. So when you get this Bible, you get what was prophesied about the Messiah. And the New Testament is the actual words of the Messiah. And it's a fabulous resource, and I give it to you. And then those of us who are really cool, all we do is go on here and go to the Timberline app. There's a Timberline app. Hit the Timberline app and go to Bible and punch it, and you got a Bible in your hip pocket right there. That's all you have to do. So Bible is coming at us in lots of different ways, and of course it's coming at us in you. That saying is, you might be the only gospel some people ever read. This is, but the point is this. The Bible matters. I could give you 50 reasons why. Let me give you six in these closing minutes. The Bible matters... Because it tells, tells us who God is and what he's like. He tells us who God is and what he's like. When you start reading scriptures in Genesis, you, you, you run right away into the, to the great I am. Exodus, I love the passage where Moses, Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. He was royalty. He was noble, right? 
He kills the guy, ends up the next 40 years herding sheep on the backside of the desert. One day he goes out and there's a bush that's on fire. And it's not just on fire. It's not burned up. He said it was not consumed. And it's a talking bush. He goes over there and the voice from the bush, Yahweh, God, says, Moses, I want you to go set my people free. And he didn't, he's wanted for murder back then. He, his picture's in every post office in Egypt. He's not going back there. And he's trying to do the two-step, the shuffle, to get out of the way. He said, well, what God are you? You know, because there are a gazillion gods back in his day. And this God says, I am that I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I say, well, what kind of a name is I am that I am? That's, I mean, clearly it's not a Western God. That would be I do that I do. This is I am that I am. Well, that's the most stable name in the universe. You want to spend all your time standing on a queen bed trying to put a light bulb in? Or do you want to stand someplace that changes a life and moves the whole earth? I am the God who goes before you. I am the creator. I am the redeemer. I am the healer. I am the provider. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the beginning. I am that God. That God is the one that's spoken of here. We find out who he is. We find out that he teaches us how to live. He teaches us how to live. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I mean, you turn around every corner. You know, you go around any corner in Scripture, you run into the Ten Commandments. Here's, here's a God who'd say, I've got these 1,312 things that I want you to do, but he's kind to us. He says, let me just give you ten things that you shouldn't do and everything else will work out. Well, we couldn't even do ten, so he slides it down to two. Why don't you love me and love your neighbor and we'll, we're good with that. Let's go with that. But the Ten Commandments are good. No other gods before me. No graven images. Don't worship idols. Honor your parents. You say, how do you do that? Well, you obey them when you're young, and you take care of them when they're old. I've been preaching that to the kids now for some time, and so we're <laughs> counting on that. But you read this text, and, you, and you're... And, You're enjoined, you're encouraged to encourage each other, to honor each other, to submit to each other, to love one another, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What would the world be like if people were really slow to anger? They were not easily offendable. How about the thing that makes all relationships work, forgiveness? You say, okay, I'm willing to forgive. Like, how many times? And he says, well... 70 times 7. You say, you have got to be kidding me. Well, if you don't want to be disturbed, don't read this. This is life-giving, but it's also disturbing. It's like surgery. Surgery ain't fun, but you get to live. And here is the, here is the Word of God that says, let me challenge your thinking on this. Let's go this way or that way. I have a friend who said, I want to work with the mayor of our town. I want to encourage him. What do I do? I said, why don't you just ask for a 10-minute stand-up meeting um, once a month? So my friend started doing that. Pretty soon the mayor said, could we do this like a little longer? Like, could we do 20 minutes and sit down? I said, yes. So he kept going. One day, my friend said, you know, Mr. Mayor, there are some really uh, good thoughts in some ancient writings in the scriptures. Would you like to look at one of those when we're together for these 20 minutes? And the 20 had turned into 30. 
and he would go to the mayor's office. Finally, the mayor said, "Why don't can I come to your place and we can hang out for 30 minutes?" I get out of the office and we. And so they started reading scripture. And one day the mayor said, "You know, I got a confession to make." He said, "What?" He said, "I've been reading ahead." And he said, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was reading ahead. I've probably done it all wrong." And my friend had a great line. He said, "Mr. Mayor." I think it's almost impossible because he said, I think I may be reading the Bible wrong. He said, I think it's almost impossible to read the Bible wrong. I had a young 20-something businessman from this town come to me. And he said, you know, I started reading the Bible this year. He said, I've never done that. I thought I'd give it a go. And he said, those first two books, Genesis, Exodus, whoa, those are brutal, man. That's better than an R-rated movie right there, Genesis and Exodus. He said, but what's with Leviticus? Leviticus is about hygienic laws. For the, I said, well, we could talk about that. But the point is, what if we were Genesis, Ex, Genesis Exodus people? I mean, all the key things about life are like in the first three chapters of Genesis, about obedience and about stewardship and about who I am and what I'm designed for and who I should listen to. It's all right there. I, what if we weren't the busters or the boomers or the millennials? What if we were Gen X people? What if we were Genesis Exodus people? Just start there. Just a thought. Let me just say this about it. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Whatever you find true about life out there, you'll find it here. Whatever you find true about life out here, you'll find it here first. Scriptures bring us comfort and hope. Comfort and hope. I have a picture of a couple of folks up here. Their names are Francis and Edith Schaefer. Some of you have been around a while. You know those names. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian historian back in the 70s during the hippie days, back when young people would go to Amsterdam to get drugs and follow what was called the hippie trail out of Amsterdam, down through Europe, through the Middle East, end up going through Kabul, Afghanistan, end up in Delhi in some junky hotel dying of heroin overdoses. But a bunch of people who walked around the country and across the world with backpacks and, and guitars on their backs were looking for truth. They were looking to find themselves, to find what's real. And the Schaefers were in a little village in Switzerland, and they created a community called Labri, which means shelter. It was a place where people like you and I, in our 20s or in our teens or whatever it was, could go and sit and talk about this. What's true about life? And thousands, hundreds, thousands of people started following Jesus as a result of their time. And Francis Schaefer came with Edith to the little college where I was president back in 1981 or two. He had, uh, it would be seven weeks before he died. He had been diagnosed with serious cancer, had been treated at, at, um, at Rochester, uh, Minnesota, at the Mayo Clinic. But he wanted to do one last college tour. He had great connections with college kids. And before he went out on the platform, my student life vice president, who is in his 40s, had just discovered he had MS. He said, Dr. Schaefer, how do you deal with the pain? Because I'm sure the pain is tremendous. He said, he said, Paul, sometimes the pain is so great at night I can hardly breathe. But I have my Bible on the, on the nightstand. And when I can't even talk, I can't even, I can't even frame words in my head. I just reach out and I pat the book. When you're in great pain, you don't need talk. What you need is presence. Because this connects me to the Most High God. If you didn't have this, you wouldn't have a psalm of comfort like Psalm 23. Many of us know parts of Psalm 23. Why don't, you, why don't you say it out loud with me this morning? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He beside the still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there. This is the, this is the God who comes along and says, Let me give you some language to put in your heart that identifies who I am and who you are and where you are. And let's do this thing together. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't have what we just read. Number three, he reveals a king and a kingdom that lasts forever. When you read this book all the way through, you find somebody to follow. We're in a political season. It makes me crazy to watch television, to hear the debates and all these kind of things. I just go nuts. I say, Ruth, I don't want to. I just can't. I just, you know. And, um, but when you read Scripture, you discover a king. Jesus walks in and says to these people who have been waiting for a king for a thousand years since King David, these Jewish people... He says, turn around, the kingdom's here. And they turn around and they say, you got to be kidding. We thought there was going to be an army and somebody really magnetic. And we've got a 30-year-old guy that's got splinters under his fingers. He's a carpenter, for Pete's sake, from a little podunk town up there somewhere. And you're kidding. He says, well, let me talk to you. And when he started talking, they said, this man speaks with authority like we've never heard. And then he healed people and he raised people from the... And they're saying, well, okay. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary from India to India, said it this way. He said, the, the world longs for a new leader and a new world order, and they find both in Jesus of Nazareth. Number four, the Bible matters because, fill in the blank, why do you think? This isn't just about folks' ideas. Why do you think the Bible matters? You don't have to fill it in right now, but just put it down to think about it. And finally, the Bible provides, it matters because it provides deep fuel for the Holy Spirit. Listen to these verses. You might want to, why don't you say them out loud with me? This is 1 Peter 24, 25, talks about Scripture. Just read it with me, if you will. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Or this one, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active. Just read it with me. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Two things go on forever. Your spirit, your body will fall off. They say, oh, Fred died. No, 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 no. His body fell off and he keeps going. Gets a new one according to scripture. That's one piece. And this. This goes on. And this is fuel for one's spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit works with in our lives in order to grow us and, and speak to us. Remember Denny, the guy from Zion, Illinois, that was in VBS, the Bible verses I mentioned at the front end? I talked to you about Denny, those of you who were here, eight years ago and told his story. I don't expect you to remember, but here's the deal. I knew Denny when he was 28 years old. He was associate director of a group called Campus Life Youth for Christ in East Central Illinois. It's like Young Life works with high schoolers. Very, very brilliant guy. And one day he suffered a rhythmic heart failure. His heart just stopped. 
It took him 10 minutes to get to the hospital, and by, he, by the time he got there, he had suffered brain damage. Today, he, in his late 60s, still in the facility back in the east. But what happened was that he lost all of his memory. And I was angry with God. You know, he can handle my anger, okay? I may not be able to handle his, but he can handle mine. And uh, I can remember standing by his bed saying, I think that the spirit of man dwells in the cortex of the brain, and when that's damaged, that person's no longer human. And I can almost hear the Lord saying, oh boy, both again, you know. And I walked into his room one day, six months into this really trying journey. And he couldn't remember anything. He knew where he was brought up in Zion, Illinois, but he didn't know his name. He didn't know his wife's name. He didn't know his little girls. He didn't know that his hands were connected to his body. You'd hand him glasses or something or the light bulb and he'd stick it in his mouth, just like a baby. I walked in this one day and I had this thought. Sometimes you have thoughts that turn out to be leadings of the Holy Spirit. I said, Denny, you remember this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I stopped. Here's a guy who doesn't know his hands are connected to his body. And he gets this faraway look in his eyes and he says that if, that if I believe in him, I won't die anymore. I said, Daddy, do you remember this? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he picked it up on key and sang it all the way to the end. And the nurse about passed out. And I start bawling. And the Lord says, both my spirit and my word are deeper than the cortex of the brain. And when the cortex is damaged, I still speak. I still minister life to people because this is fuel for the Holy Spirit deep in me. Somebody says, can you explain that? Absolutely not. I have no idea. But I watched it over and over and over again. How do we discover who God is and how he thinks, who we are and what he dreams for us? Here. Brothers and sisters in the Bria showed us if we're eager and inquisitive and get after it every day, noble. Look, all is noble. Don't be the one who stands on a bouncy bed all one's life trying to change a light bulb. Be the one who stands on truth and let it give us life. Let's bow our hearts and our heads together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for these dear friends, for the privilege of being here today. Just in the quiet of this moment, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands. We do that often here and with real intent and real purpose. But this, this morning, I don't want you to raise a hand. What I'd like you to do is just in your heart, speak to the Lord for a moment and say, Lord, I, I want to stand on your truth. Help me to know best how to get that inside me. Some of us need discipline in that. Some of us just need motivation. Some of us don't know where to start. But help us just in your heart. Just pray that in the quiet of this moment. I'm going to stop talking for a few seconds. And you just pray, if you will. Lord, thank you for those people in history who often have died to get this book into a language that people could understand. Thank you for the generations that have passed it on. Thank you for a German grandmother who read from Heiliger Schrift in 1905 
so that I might be able to follow Jesus. Thank you for every heart here turned toward you and for the ones who are new to all of this. Help there be a spark by your spirit to explore what might be true. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.